0: Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com now. Let's get to the show. Well, I should have pulled it up before we hit record, but it's been a while since you've been on. Been on, Elizabeth. It's great to have you back on the show. How have you been?
1: Very good, thanks. Very good.
0: Okay, well, let's get into it. Um, China seems to dominate, at least my part of the news. As a China kind of a outside China watcher, uh, not as a, not an expert like yourself, but um, and I get texts from people all the time. Oh, China's going to do this, or China's going to do that, or. What do you think about China with this? And so let's ask you, the expert, what's going on in China right now?
1: Well, right now it's about COVID. It's also all about the just concluded 20th Party Congress. So I can address COVID first. China is still very much locked down to foreigners. Foreigners still need to quarantine uh, once they're in. They must do many, many COVID tests as local residents do as well. I mean, residents are doing tests several times a day. They have to queue up on very long lines. So it's, it's pretty difficult. What we're finding is that there are cases in China, and when they flare up, because Xi Jinping, the leader of China, has a zero COVID policy that they really try to nip it in the bud. And so how do they nip it in the bud? Well, they shut down housing blocks, they shut down city districts. They shut down whole cities. They limit transportation in and out. So it's very, very difficult on the people there. But but Xi Jinping has really staked his reputation on zero COVID. And honestly, you know, China can build hospitals very quickly. We saw that in the early days of COVID. They were building hospitals like in five days. But to staff the hospitals is difficult. They don't have enough doctors. China has one doctor for every like fifteen hundred to two thousand people, and uh, the standard um, is is much much less in in the uh, developed world. And the, and the World Health Organization standard is is one to I think like you know five hundred something like that. So so the the big fear is if they open up that there's going to be you know massive infections. People will get sick. There won't be enough doctors and it'll be a calamity. And then Xi Jinping, you know, is going to have a tremendous, tremendous difficulty maintaining his, his power and status then. So that's what's going on. COVID is the big thing. Um, and the other thing was the 20th Party Congress. And we could talk at length about that. But that just concluded in late October. And now uh, the party cells all throughout China are rolling out Xi Jinping thought. These volumes of books on Xi Jinping thought that everyone is now uh, picking up, you know, they, the party cells, the, the schools, the, the, you know, the young pioneers, the young, young, was it, China Youth League? They're all like carefully studying this political propaganda and indoctrination, and they all need to know it very, very well.
0: Okay, so let's talk about COVID for just a second here. We're open in the West. Um, we, we do have a better doctor ratio than you described in China. But, I mean, whatever you think about COVID in 2020 or 2021, it, it seems that Omicron, everyone agrees, is, is not that deadly. Um, and it, it's by and large not impacting the West. Why is China pretending that this is not the case there? Because they, they obviously can see, you know, Xi Jinping is aware of this information. Why is he acting this way? Well?
1: Well, um, in the West, we have the benefit of the Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, and and several other um, variations of the uh, vaccine, which, as you know, doesn't prevent you from catching COVID, but it it, it helps prevent um, very serious illness, death, and and hospitalization. China uses its own domestic vaccinations, uh, vaccines. And um, it's questionable how effective they are. Under certain circumstances, they're very effective. Um, Under other circumstances, they might only be about 50 percent effective. And only about 85 percent of China's elderly have been vaccinated, you know, in the United States and much of the West. The vaccination programs campaign started with the elderly, the most vulnerable, and then, you know, the age brackets moved down from there. Um, But in China, they did not vaccinate the elderly first. And so if they open up and this Omicron or various other variants come in, there's not a lot of immunity, number one, in China. In the West now, we've built up immunity over two years. But by keeping the virus out, there's not as much immunity And there is not as many of the elderly fully vaccinated. And so, you know, China has a huge population, approximately 1.4 billion people. And so if only a very small percentage of elderly um, receive some variant of COVID, and again, it might not be the most, um, you you know, deadly variant, people are going to get very sick and people are going to die. And then Xi Jinping, he's, he's the head of everything over there now. He's going to take it on the chin. And so they don't want to risk that. They don't want to risk like showing, demonstrating, illustrating that their vaccine is not as good as those in the West, and they just can't have the numbers of people being ill and dying. The, the, Xi Jinping and the Communist Party cannot tolerate that.
0: Yeah. So one of the frustrations I've had, uh, about the china vaccine I, I don't remember the formal name for it but um was early on people were talking about how china was going to change the world with this vaccine and there's no doubt that they were shipping the vaccine all over the world trying to use it as leverage for negotiations mm-hmm. but it's not it shouldn't surprise us um if you look at some of how their belt and road initiative plays out that it's not as effective as they said it was going to be there's a lot of problems with it but what is it about the propensity for people who cover china to over inflate how successful chinese ventures will be
1: Well, that's an interesting point, because so much of the Western media is so critical about China. It's like China bad, you know, every time you read something. But it is true that uh, China was using vaccines as a tool of soft power. And soft power is the power to get people or other countries to do what you want them to do, because they want to emulate you. They like your values. They like you. And the United States has tremendous, well, hard power is military power and economic coercive power. But we also have tremendous soft power because of our values, our democratic values. China is a bit late to the game on the soft power, but they're very good at now uh, trying to employ it. And so one tool was the, the vaccines to less developed countries where uh, the developed world had not gotten vaccines as quickly enough. So here comes China and no one knew really the efficacy of them. And so they really, the Chinese state media uh, made a big to do about China donated so many of these vaccines, so many millions of vaccines to this third world country, this less developed country. And then you see, you know, them reci- re- receiving in the other country these vaccines from China. And same with like the PPE, right? The masks, the personal protective equipment. And, and China, you know, I honestly in several countries made it a condition of receiving the aid that it would be splashed all over the media that, that the, um, the local, that is the foreign country, dignitary, high-level officials come and, and receive this aid. And, 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 you know, they did that with Italy. I don't know if you remember that. Italy was hit very hard early on in uh, March of 2020. And China sent a bunch of aid to Italy. And, and the condition was that, you know, you needed to show all this aid. And then later on, when Italy um, sent aid to China, when China got struck very hard, um, it was not um, distributed in the state media. So I just thought that was kind of an interesting little fun fact there. And so, you know, it's, it's Chinese goodwill that it's helping out other countries.
0: Yeah, I'm also thinking of, I think, Brazil um, early on was getting the vaccine in large doses, and there was a lot of that propaganda put around there. And to your point, this is the frustration with China, is it's either China bad or China good. But there's never an examination of China, it seems, right? It's either we have a narrative of either China is going to do what they say, and therefore when they say it, we're going to say that, or China is the worst thing ever, and so we're going to never, and to me, it's, it's, I'm more confused on trying to read what they're doing because there is a ton of propaganda that you always have to consider when they're doing stuff. And so how do you balance that? And so to me, when you when you read these headlines, and these stories, it's um, it's never straightforward. But in the West, we, we want to purport it to be straightforward. And to me, that's kind of a um, I think part of why we get China wrong a lot of times.
1: Well, part of the problem is a lot of us are not there, right? During COVID, it's been nearly impossible for foreigners to get in for the last two years, right? I mean, you, you had to have a special visa. Even even Chinese citizens who were out of the country had to get a special visa to go back into China to visit elderly or dying relatives. And it took so long to get the visa, and then they had to plan their travel, and 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 flights were limited and economy class tickets to China went up to about 10,000 U.S. dollars. And so imagine just the logistics of getting into China were, were daunting. Meanwhile, what has happened over that time is as Xi Jinping consolidated his power, became more powerful and, and China became um, more perturbed by uh, Western criticism of China, you know, especially regarding like reporting on um, abuses in Xinjiang and and other regions, Hong Kong. Okay, a lot of Western journalists supported the Hong Kong um, movement. And so uh, China kicked out a lot of reporters. If you read articles about China now in the print media, have you noticed that the dateline very often now says Taipei, Taipei, Taiwan? Yeah, um, and so certainly there are still some Westerners in China, but not as um, Western journalists in China, but not as many. So a lot of them are now reporting from outside the country, and a lot of scholars are not able to get into China, and the Chinese scholars can't get visas to come out to come to the United States to engage in academic exchanges and dialogues. And so you know, I, I can talk about you know a personal example. Here I am in the in the West, the United States. Uh, which is critical to China, you know, because it's communist and controls the people and the media there. Uh, And then you go, you go to China and it's, it's a great place to visit and the people don't seem to be walking around with long faces and you go to their glittering shopping malls and people are buying stuff and they're drinking, you know, in the cafes and, you know, life goes on. And you would think over here in the West that everyone in China is walking around feeling like repressed. And they're and they're not. And so, again, to get back to the point that we're not there. So we're we're, we're just kind of getting we're getting a lot of the bad. And, and and I think a lot of people are really skeptical of Chinese um Media Like like China has a broadcast facility up in D.C. It's called CGTN, China Global Television News um, America. And they report all over the world. You know, unlike American media, where you you get a couple of news stories and then it's about like the latest divorce in Hollywood. (laughs) CGTN and Al Jazeera. And many of the other foreign broadcasters, they actually broadcast news from all over the world. But of course, they're going to put a favorable light on it. CGTN, it it sells China's story. And that's what it does. And so if you watch it, they're going to talk about all like the good that China does Well, you know, journalists and Americans are are going to be skeptical and say, we're not going to get snookered by that. We know really what's going on. And so serious journalists who are generally critical of any government don't want to be caught saying favorable things about China because they're going to look like they really didn't do their research.
0: Right. Yeah, I think, um, and I'll link to, I brought this up before. Um, Have you seen the documentary In the Same Breath on HBO Max? No, I have not. Okay. It's, 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 um, I brought up on the show a couple of times. It's, um, it's a Chinese national who her family was from Wuhan. She lives in the States now and she went back home in like January of 2020 and then she came back, but then she hired a video camera crew to be inside Wuhan. And so you can actually see from inside Wuhan, what was going on, like on the street. You know, it's not a, it's not a, you know, a 30,000 foot view. It's like a 3000 foot view. And so it's interesting to see. And she interviews a bunch of people And what I always tell people about um, the reason I encourage them to watch it is, you hear the average citizen of Wuhan give you their thoughts, Mm. and if you're thinking about it, then you realize, is this really their thoughts, or are they afraid that they might get retribution if they say the wrong thing? Yeah, it's an interesting look inside of, um, inside of that world that you're. I'm sitting in Texas, and so I'm not there, obviously, Um, and so it's an interesting look inside of what happened, at least at that level. Uh, and how the response was to it, and how it was covered, and some of the verbiage that's used. And I think a lot of people, um, you know, here in the West, were are like, "Oh man, we just we just go over there, and they'll they'll be freedom-loving democracy folk." And it's like, no, no, that's not that's not how they think. And then the other thing is, uh, I think it was Desmond Schum, maybe uh, when I had him on, uh, was talking about WeChat and the influence of WeChat has, and how people are get sucked into that into the into the world of WeChat, and how it's constantly. Um, shaping the worldview even once they get outside of china that they go back to wechat for all their news and stuff and so um i think you're right to point out that the, the way that they handle the news and the way that it's it's there is that it it, it very much shapes uh, people in china of course but then once they leave china they're still kind of drawn to that that sense of nationalism that sense a pride that sense of we we're going to tell you what the truth is and and everyone else is a liar so it's it's, it's a fascinating dynamic
1: you're absolutely right. In China, of course, um, Chinese people have to be careful uh, because WeChat is not encrypted. And uh, as as you probably know, uh, China now has, all um, Chinese people in China have a social credit score. And so if they're promoting and sharing uh, positive, you know, stories about Xi Jinping, CCP, China. It can even be like about their antiquities, like they're this great art exhibit. But anything positive yeah. about China, they they get like brownie points. But mm-hmm. anything critical, they get demerits. And and it's not just, of course, what they're saying, but like let's say they don't pay their rent, or if they're you know they owe someone money, or they you know, uh, I don't know drove the wrong way in a one way street, or something like that. You know, um, they can get demerits. And if they have enough demerits, then they cannot. Um use their they can't use their phones to to pay uh for you know food delivery for groceries you know in china it's mostly i think they' call it like you know tap and pay now and you're using your phone. Uh, to pay everything so if you have demerits and you can't use your phone uh, to make a flight reservation to get a train ticket that's a real problem so you're going to be very very careful what you say using social media what you put out online now chinese say they can be candid to their friends individually you have a bunch of friends over for dinner you know they they can talk but you don't know you know who's going to repeat something So that's a little bit of a problem. But it's true. Like when as a foreigner in China, like how candid are they going to be with me? There's always going to be that barrier. Right. And so they may be defensive about their country, whereas they might be critical about some things that um, the Chinese party state is doing to their friends. But they're not going to voice that to me. And then when they come to the United States again, they might be critical amongst their friends in the States, but not as critical to foreigners. So it is it is hard to gauge public opinion. My impression overall, before COVID, is that um, the Chinese people overall were were approving of the Xi Jinping um, regime because he did come in on this anti-corruption uh, policy. And he did clean up a lot of the corruption. It was just rife in China. Now, he did use it to get rid of um, many, many political adversaries, um, as as we, we shouldn't be surprised, you know, by that. But the Chinese are very proud of how far their country has come in the last 30 or 40 years. That is undeniable. And so there's a lot of positive going on in China. They look, they know it's for the, for the average person, it's very safe. China is very safe. And the Chinese will say, you know, life is the most important thing. About a million Americans died during COVID. They didn't have numbers. We will never know official numbers, but we know it's not anywhere near like that, right? And so they'll look at us and they'll be very critical of the United States. And then they'll say, hey, look, you know, we closed up, but, you know, we're alive.
0: Right. Okay. We've touched around Taiwan. Let's talk Taiwan. What's your read on the current position of uh, Xi Jinping towards Taiwan? What is he thinking? Is he really going to invade? Is it propaganda? What's your read?
1: Right. So Xi Jinping has made it clear, as his predecessors did as well, that uh, Taiwan is a core interest. Um, It is a part of the PRC. And that he will never, ever, ever relinquish, you know, any, uh, any, any attempt, you know, to, to unite it with, um, the mainland. Now, of course, on Taiwan, Taiwan's official name is the Republic of China, the old nationalist government that lost the civil war, um, retreated to Taiwan and they literally picked up the government and they moved it to Taiwan. So officially it's still the Republic of China. The Republic of China was created on the mainland in 1911, okay? And so the Republic of China predates the PRC, which was established by Mao and the communists in 49. So the government on Taiwan says we have never been a part of the PRC because we existed before the PRC. Xi Jinping and company say that's a bunch of bunk. You had a civil war, you lost. You retreated to this island, and you have no business being separate from us. You lost the civil war. You're a part of us. And so there's there's not going to be agreement on that one. Okay. And so China's official position and the US official position on the Taiwan question is peaceful. Uh, Peaceful settlement. I Actually, wait, I should clarify. Let me back up. China's official position is peaceful reunification. Okay. U.S. version is peaceful resolution. Okay. So we don't say unification. We don't say independence. We just say in the United States, we say both sides of Taiwan Strait have to agree on what they want to do. Okay. China says peaceful reunification. And so officially... And I think that Xi Jinping does want to do it peacefully. He knows that if he had to go to war to recover Taiwan, it would be catastrophic. It would be catastrophic for China, for Taiwan, for the West, for trade, for economy, for the environment all around. And so he is going to threaten Taiwan. He's going to push the envelope and putting pressure on Taiwan as much as possible to scare Taiwan. And also to scare the United States. The big question is, how high can China raise the cost to the United States and our allies to protect Taiwan? Like, how far will the United States and its allies go to protect Taiwan? Are we willing to sacrifice 10,000 of our youth, 20,000, 50,000? Are we willing to sacrifice Guam? Marshall Islands, right? And so and so, uh, the military under Xi Jinping, they're going to build up, build up, build up as much military power as they need to raise the potential cost of a conflict, so that the United States and our allies think twice about engaging China militarily.
0: So. Do you agree then, you talk about raising the cost, do you agree that Xi Jinping would never say this, but understands that if he were to lose a conquest over Taiwan, it would be the end of his reign?
1: Yeah, and I think I think that is one thing that would cause him to hesitate. Yes. Uh But, you know, at the same time, he just elevated two generals from China's eastern region. You know, China's military regions are broken up to, you know, southern, eastern, northern, whatever. And he just, and the eastern region is that that is closest to Taiwan, across the Taiwan Strait. And he just elevated them to very high positions in the Central Military Commission, indicating that they're going to have an even bigger voice in militarization of of the Taiwan Strait, South China Sea, East China Sea, with the goal of if Xi Jinping wants to pull the trigger, they can follow through. The, the problem with elevating China's preparedness against Taiwan is at what point does the military and and the Chinese population say You've been talking about unification now for like 70 years. OK. And Xi Jinping is is escalating, you know, that pressure. And so people might say you you're still talking about it and you're not busting a move here. And right now, I believe that um, a lot of the Chinese leadership thinks that the U.S. military and U.S. political leadership is in a weak phase. Xi Jinping and company do not see President Biden as a very strong president. You know, our Navy is shrinking. Our Air Force is shrinking. Uh, The the Democrats in the White House are hesitant to increase U.S. military spending to the level that it needs to be to have a credible deterrence against China. Okay? Okay. So imagine now we're the Chinese military and we're thinking that if we want to bust a move the United States and its allies are likely to challenge us okay do we bust a move when the United States is relatively weak or are we going to wait for more military spending tighter alliances amongst the US and its allies right so they're probably calculating when is the when is the the best time? And you want to move when your adversary is at a weak point, not when it's you know beefed up its military budget. So that's probably what they're thinking. They're probably thinking right now they don't need to invade because nothing's really happening. Taiwan hasn't declared independence. That's a non-starter. Okay, if Taiwan and 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 no president in Taiwan, no legislature in Taiwan is going to declare independence, okay? But if Xi Jinping and company perceived that Taiwan was moving more and more and more out of China's orbit, then the military and the population might say, okay, let's go. And so right now, I'm sure the Chinese military is thinking about when might that happen? Now, um, I can talk briefly about Taiwan if you want. They are having local elections. The Western medium calls them local elections. They are the legislative and the district, you know, elections on november twenty six, which is right around the corner. And the DPP, which now runs the executive branch, looks like it's in a good position to um, control many of the uh, local, you know, seats of power. The old nationalist party just doesn't seem, to have much traction with Taiwan voters, especially the young voters, anymore. And Xi Jinping and the Communist Party just loathes the DPP. DPP stands for Democratic Progressive Party. And when they were officially created in their party constitution, they do state their their goal. Their eventual goal is Taiwan Taiwan independence, but they've kind of papered that over, right? They, they said, well, that, that's in the old constitution. And so we're not pressing for that now. Okay, so I am sure that Beijing is waiting to see what the results of these local elections are and then to see like the flavor of politics moving forward in Taiwan in 2023,
0: Do you think the West would, the US primarily would, you know, kind of try to soften maybe some of that rhetoric from Taiwan if there was certain a certain groundswell of, hey, we want independence? Do you think the West would be like, ah, let's let's pump the brakes here a little a little bit?
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and we did see that back um, in the uh, the first decade of the the two thousands when the DPP candidate then Chen Shui Bian won in a three way race. Okay, And then they had to govern. At that time, the platform was independence. And when he came in, uh, the DPP changed some of the street names in Taipei. Uh, If you go to Taipei now, the street names are named for like mainland, places in the mainland, or Confucian values, okay, that came over when the nationalists retreated to Taiwan. And so... When Chen Xibian came in, they changed some of the street names to more like ethnic Taiwanese names, and they started to make the island much more Taiwanese than like mainland Chinese. And that really made um China, but also Beijing, uh I should say Washington, um, nervous that he started to push the envelope. And so, yes, there was a lot of like shuttle diplomacy, um, you know, U.S. people going over, you know, to Taiwan, calling people, you know, at at the Taiwan um, unofficial embassy, you know, for for talks and just saying, okay, cool it, cool it, cool it, um, because uh, Beijing was becoming very, very hot around the collar. So, yeah, we have, you know, thankfully, Washington has very, very good communication with Taipei. Um, also, you know, Taiwan has an unofficial embassy. It's called Techro, like Taipei Economic Relation, Cooperative Organization, whatever. But uh, the U.S. has very good relations, uh, unofficial relations with Taiwan. But the channels of communication are very much open. You know, um, I also, um, referring back to those elections that are um, in November twenty six. another reason why they're so important is they very often are seen as a bellwether for the presidential election. Taiwan will have a presidential election in early 2024. And so, uh, you know, even though these local elections are going to be the end of this year, uh, the campaign for president will start in Taiwan, you know, sometime next year, and so it does seem to follow that if one party does very well in the local elections, that um, that party's candidate for president will do well, and so that that's a reason why the Taiwan watchers and the China watchers are looking at these Taiwan elections because it will give us a feel. For the presidential election in Taiwan. Now, the current president of Taiwan, um, Tsai Ing-wen, uh, she cannot succeed herself now. Uh, Taiwan has a you know a two-term limit, and so of course it all depends on who uh, the DPP candidate is, the KMT candidate. Uh, But also, you know, a lot can happen between now and, let's say, you know, mid to late 2023, um, when that uh, campaign, um, presidential campaign is really going in Taiwan. So, you know, a lot a lot to keep an an eye on. But that will also determine uh, the way China treats Taiwan going forward.
0: Uh, Okay, so you mentioned the the 20th Party Congress. Let's go back to that. Um, there was a lot of controversy when that happened. There's a leader getting escorted out. Um, of course, people are trying to figure out what's going to happen. No, no, um, there was a, reports of a coup. You know, Now that the dust has settled, just those few days, what was fact, what was fiction around a lot? Of, obviously, there was no coup, but around a lot of those rumors.
1: Right, right. So we all saw Hu being escorted out involuntarily, you know, clearly it it was it was against his will. The big question was, um, did it have to do with that red folder? And we don't know what's in the red folder, though, though, I think it was BBC or another foreign media. They had a Zoom and they could Zoom in. And I think they said it looked like it was a slate of candidates. But, you know, don't quote me on that. OK, because I don't remember precisely. And there's a lot of speculation. Um, but, you know, the, the, the bigger picture, the bigger picture is. OK, so the 20th Party Congress, by the way, is a big party powwow. It is not a state government meeting. Okay, this would be as if like the Democrats were all meeting at DNC or Republicans all at ROC, uh, RNC, sorry, in in Washington. Okay, And so and so uh, Xi Jinping succeeded himself for a third term, which was unprecedented. Okay, at least since the days of of Mao. Right. Um, But but since the days of Mao, people would step down, Mao and Deng, but people would step down. But he decided, no, he was going to stay on. And he had the support. How was he able to do that? Well, originally, Xi Jinping belonged to something called the Shanghai Faction. And Shanghai Faction is made up of a lot of people who have association, a lot of party people have association with Shanghai, which is the financial nexus of China. Okay. And so the Communist Party, um, is, it's not really monolithic. It's, it's, it's a huge party. It's like 90 million to 100 million members now, but it does have factions. And the biggest faction, most powerful factions are the Shanghai faction and then the China Youth League faction. Okay. Hu Jintao belonged to the China Youth League faction. And there's not a lot of love lost between the two factions. Now, Xi Jinping, when he consolidated his power after he came to power in 2012, over, you know, like four, five, six years, kind of made his own faction. And so he became incredibly powerful. Now, the last party Congress, he had to allow some people from the China Youth League faction to sit on, on on the Communist Party's highest board, and that's the standing committee. It's only made up of seven, seven super elites, okay? The last Chinese standing committee and the Politburo that's made up again of like 19 of Chinese movers and shakers, they had some China Youth League faction people on it. And Xi Jinping wanted to get rid of that opposition faction. So at the 20th Party Congress, he was successful in getting the standing committee stacked with all people from his faction, all of his loyalists. Remember, Hu Jintao was from Communist Youth League. There is speculation that There was a slate of candidates that was a mix of Communist Youth League and Shanghai faction that he thought he was going to vote on. And then when they got to the meeting, that slate had been switched out for all either Shanghai clique or Xi Jinping clique candidates. And they didn't want Hu Jintao to see that there had been a switcheroo and make a stink. That is speculation. That is speculation. But it's the most speculation swirling around. That can be completely bogus. But but we do know that in the end, Xi Jinping was successful in getting all loyalists um, on the standing committee and Hu Jintao, you know, maybe he was going to vote against it. We don't know. That would be embarrassing because he was sitting immediately to the left of Xi Jinping. And so at some point, uh, it was decided that he should leave that meeting.
0: Would he not be afraid of retribution, though, voting against Xi Jinping right beside him?
1: Well, I yeah, that that that's a good question. Um, Hu Jintao himself doesn't have any more power. It's more like the faction has power. And so it depended, you know, how strongly he felt about it and how strongly he wanted to make a stand. But instead, Xi Jinping made Hu Jintao look weak. And actually, you know what? Maybe Hu Jintao should take that cover. The official the official party... Um, Yeah, the the official party uh, reasoning excuse for Hu's removal is that he wasn't well. He was having some type of just a health crisis and they took him out so he could rest in another room. And in fact, there was another meeting that evening. I'm not sure. I don't think it was televised that Hu Jintao was there in a meeting that evening. Okay, so if I were Hu Jintao, I would probably take that cover and say, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't feeling well. I'm not aware that he came out and made any you know, public statements, but that was kind of his way, a graceful way out.
0: Okay, so Xi Jinping is basically ruler for life, it seems. Um, you mentioned these volumes are going out. Um, should we expect any drastic change... These next two years. And, and I tie that to your comments about the Biden administration. So you got about two years left. Um, if they don't view the Biden administration as kind of tough or a worthy adversary or however you want to phrase that, um, should we expect anything of significance to happen knowing that you have him for two more years locked in?
1: I expect zero COVID to continue for a while. There's been a lot of rumors and talk about easing it, apparently. They have tried to ease it in a few cities in um, Guangzhou and southern coastal China, I believe in Wuhan, and cases flared up, so they limited again, and uh, that's almost going to be a cat and mouse game. So I anticipate that uh, we're going to see zero COVID through the winter and into, whew, probably March or April, you know, in March and in the spring, March and April, Beijing just gets coated by Gobi dust desert. And that causes respiratory problems as well. So I suspect that they will not uh, really loosen up much until until that Gobi desert, you know, dust phenomenon that happens every year. So that's sometime in the spring. Uh, The other thing I anticipate is that we are going to see, well, we already see loyalists um, running the party state. Okay. The Chinese Communist Party had its big meeting, um, the every five years meeting in October of this year, in March of 2023. So about four months from now. The state apparatus will have its big meeting. The national legislature will meet en masse and they will reelect Xi Jinping as head of state. Okay, now the Western media calls him president, but in Chinese, if you're reading Chinese, there's no such term in Chinese. He's actually called leader or chairman, of state, okay? So he will be reselected by the national legislature. They don't have popular vote for president or leader of state, okay? So the national legislature absolutely will reselect him as head of state because he was effective just a few years ago in having the state constitution rewritten to remove the term limits. So he will be party leader for life and he can be state leader for life if he so chooses. It doesn't mean he has to. It might be at some point he just decides to step down. Okay, so we're going to see a big a big um, government meeting in March where we're going to see a new prime minister. It's called Premier there a new um, cabinet, okay? And we can anticipate that, again, this will be stacked with all people from his faction. Because right now, the Premier is from another faction, okay? Li Keqiang is from that that, that Youth League um, faction. So he's going to bring in someone. <laughs> believe it or not, believe it or not, the Premier is most likely going to go from Li Keqiang to... Li Qiang, that's going to be the new guy's name. Okay, you just take the ke out and you've got Li Qiang. And he's, he's a loyalist. He's a Xi loyalist. The problem with that, there, there, there are benefits and costs to Xi Jinping in China for that. Uh, the problem is, if you have loyalists, who's going to say, uh-uh, we're going off the rails here. Something's going wrong. I disagree. Okay. Uh, the good thing is, for Xi Jinping, is that you can get stuff done. You say jump, people say how high, right? <laughs> right. So, so that's a mixed bag there. So we're going to see loyalists, and we're going to see them carry a lot of water for Xi Jinping. Now, that, that new premier coming in, Li Chang, he was the head of um, the Shanghai Communist Party. Again, Shanghai is China's financial center. He had to deal with foreign businesses all the time. So I don't think the guy's going to come in and just nod his head to Xi Jinping, you know, as Xi Jinping starts to squeeze the private sector as he wants to make a bigger state sector in the economy. I suspect Li Chang's going to come in and say, you know, let's, let's think about this. Okay. Now regarding diplomacy, you've probably heard the term wolf warrior mm-hmm. diplomacy. It's a very aggressive diplomacy. Chinese diplomats dressing down, criticizing publicly other diplomats. I suspect that we'll see a fair amount of that going forward until until Xi Jinping tells them to tone it down. Remember, all these people in politics, in China, as anywhere else, they're trying to build their careers, right? And so um, in China, because it's authoritarian, it's a one-party state, you need to follow the ruler, okay? And so if he says, this is what we're going to do, you're pretty much going to follow that. Now, Xi Jinping might find that wolf warrior diplomacy is hurting China relations with other countries. You know, we are seeing Europe back away from relations with China, not diplomatically, economically. Do you know that the United States now imports more goods from europe than from china that is mm-hmm. that is brand new wow and wow. and part of that is a part of that is that because of wolf War diplomacy and china bad china bad and also because of the trade war um with china that um china's not going to like the position that it's going to end up in if it keeps using this Wolf warrior diplomacy, which goes down very well in China. China is standing up for itself. But in the West, it's like you're bullying. You're being abrasive. Uh, And the other thing that we'll see regarding Taiwan is we will continue to see China push the envelope. Might not necessarily be like military threats, but China will continue to try to squeeze, limit Taiwan's diplomatic space by trying to pick off uh, Taiwan's few remaining diplomatic partners Um, you know, by maybe it goes to Europe and it says, yeah, if you want to send a delegation to Taiwan, well, maybe, maybe you'll find that your businesses are in China. mm, They're not passing uh, safety inspections. You know, they can do all kinds of stuff like that. I I anticipate we'll see more of that.
0: Yeah. I've I've thought for some time that it's interesting the U S foreign policy versus China's foreign policy. So, um, you know, the U.S. and China, in some ways, are, are quite similar. They're going to do what they're going to do. Um, but the U.S., for all of its uh, foreign, policy, foreign policy faults, has some sense of goodwill built into the game. And so it's it's the reserve currency. It's helped its allies for many years. Um, you know, it, it's kind of kept things stable, by and large. Um, China doesn't have that. And, and so... They, 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 their Belt and Road Initiative has maybe started turning, turning some of that over, or some of their propaganda camp campaigns, or the vaccine stuff. Some of that stuff has probably helped for sure, um, but it doesn't seem that they have ingrained into the system uh, goodwill and trust, and that's been eroded a lot over the past few years. So I do wonder if, while well, I think the U.S. definitely overplays its hand and that's coming back to bite it, I wonder if China might be overplaying its hand. Uh, at a faster pace because they just don't have that global goodwill built in. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, did I cut out there. Yeah, you froze. <laughs> sorry, I'll ask again. Okay. I think the U.S. has overplayed its hand um, with some of its foreign policy and um, it's pushed the limits, but it has a long history um, in the world. Uh, it's a reserve currency. It has certain things that people do appreciate about the U.S., uh, whereas China, um, it does. Ha- it's starting to get those things, maybe with Belt and Road um, or some of its other stuff. But the goodwill it has globally is less. So when they push the em- envelope, I'm not sure if they're not overplaying how fast the goodwill for China might erode versus how good, how fast the goodwill for the U.S. might erode. Now I think the U.S. is overplaying it until so there's there's. Some things that you're seeing that the people are are looking towards China because they like how China handles things. But generally speaking, do you think that China is pushing its hand too far globally?
1: I think the things that hurt China the most are the response to COVID, the origins of COVID, when Australia and other countries, you know, said we want to have um, a an objective, you know, international body, you know, go in international, um, what, yeah, international group go in. And, and, and find out the origins. And eventually, World Health Organization sent a crew in that was pretty much, you know, handpicked by China. And they came out and like, oh, it's inconclusive, or it came from some wet market or something like that. And so I think China actually lost, I know in Europe, it lost a lot of the goodwill that it had built up through trade. Uh, because of the the response to COVID, the origins of COVID. Uh, The other thing that really um, appears to have hurt China in Europe is uh, China essentially uh, supporting Russia in its invasion of Ukraine. And and when I say support, I mean that it did not condemn and, and any UN resolution, of course, because um, China has a seat on the U.N. Security Council, right, um, has has blocked, you know, condemnations and got other countries to support China in blocking condemnations in the U.N. China enjoys tremendous goodwill in the less developed world. And that is partly because of Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, you know, going back to the whole idea that in the Western media and the West, it's all like China bad. Um, the B- yeah, the BRI, a, a huge problem with BRI is the debt that accompanies a lot of these projects. However, these less developed countries would not have the infrastructure that they have today without Belt and Road Initiative. And, and you know, China has built world class airports and railways and highways that have made trade within those countries much smoother transportation better those countries didn't have the money they did not have the financial resources they did not have the manpower they did not have the know-how so they needed someone to come in and the, the united states has been generous to the third world but when it came to a lot of that infrastructure there wasn't a lot on the part of western private sector and enough from Western governments in the U.S. to do these projects. And so it was an open field for China to come in. And so a lot of countries... I Look at a map of Africa, portions of the Middle East, and Latin America that have belt and road infrastructure projects there, agreements, programs there. They have Chinatowns because now... You know, what disturbs the local governments, I guess the foreign government, is that China brings its own laborers in, its expertise. But along with that comes Chinese restaurants and stores and shops and residences. And that's a boon to the economy in a lot of countries. And so a lot of countries outside of the United States, Western Europe and Japan, really like China. So China's Chinese diplomats have become very aggressive toward the West because it's the West that is critical of China for its human rights abuses and for the debt that it's, you know, getting these less developed countries into with BRI. But it's a very different story in much of the rest of the world. And a lot of those BRI projects, you know, they might be non-performing. After a while, however, they have bought votes for China, not just in like the UN General Assembly, but in UN associated bodies, such as World Health Organization, World Trade Organization, um, you know, the development banks. And so China's like bought a lot of support through these BRI projects. And you don't see the Chinese diplomats using this wolf warrior diplomacy in less developed countries, because they're, they're grateful to China. Mm
0: -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. All right. We will link to your book, obviously, in the show notes. Where else would you like us to send people to?
1: To send people to? Um, Elaris Consulting, LLC. (laughs) Just say I'm president of Elaris Consulting, and then, and then my book. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. We'll link to all of that In the show notes, thank you so much for your time today. It was good to get you back on.
1: Yeah, this was fun. I always always enjoy talking about China, Taiwan, and it's a good show. You do a good show.
0: Thanks for listening today. Really, really appreciate it. If you could, drop a five-star review wherever you may be. We keep getting on great guests, and that's because you keep supporting that show. If you want to know more, go to warroommedia.com.
2: Ever wonder if the deep state murdered President Kennedy? If Hillary Clinton is kidnapping babies? If the COVID-19 virus is part of a plot to turn your country into an evil dictatorship? Or if Tom Cruise is a shape-shifting alien reptile? Hi, my name is Michel Jacques Gagnier. i I'm a Canadian author, teacher, philosophical historian, and recovering conspiracist. I'm also the creator and host of the Paranoid Planet podcast, a monthly variety show that combines fun conversations, long-form interviews, thoughtful essays, film and book reviews, and a little bit of silliness on the subject of, well, you guessed it, conspiracy theories. So if you want to learn more about conspiracism, if you want to become a better critical thinker, or if you just enjoy listening to interesting conversations in an entertaining format, Check out the Paranoid Planet podcast at www.paranoidplanet.ca That's www.paranoidplanet.ca Or anywhere you download your favourite podcasts. Until then, make sure you keep the blinds closed, avoid talking to strangers, and, just to be safe, avoid drinking the water out of the tap. You'll thank us for it later. But don't take my word for it. Ask this guy.
0: What do you think tap water is? It's a gay
2: bomb, baby. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Ugh, ugh, serious crap!
0: I'm sick of being social engineered. It's not funny!